Hey, welcome in. I'm Tom Maley, and I need to tell you right up front, this month's episode of Write You a Song is a little different from all the rest. For starters, there are two guests, a recently nominated Nashville Songwriting Hall of Fame candidate, Tia Sillers, who gives us stories behind several of her diverse catalogs of songs, including the worldwide smash, I Hope You Dance. And then, last 15 minutes or so, we welcome a young singer-songwriter named Shannon Labrie, with whom Tia collaborated on a new album called Building, which is out now. The songs Shannon and Tia wrote are bold and creative, and you will love Shannon's voice. Now, the other thing that's different is this is the first Write You a Song I've done via Zoom. And so the audio is going to sound a little different from past episodes. And to be honest, I'm not 100% thrilled with how it came out. But I've tried to improve it with some production magic. I think it works. I hope that you still find the interviews listenable because Tia is an absolute blast and Shannon's music is definitely worth hearing. Oh, and if you do keep listening all the way up until the wrap-up, there's another minute or so right after that with an excerpt from my interview with Tia. Because it was on Zoom, I point out a poster to her that was over my shoulder the whole time that I thought she might be interested in, and she shares a quick but very sweet little story that involves her late husband, rock and roll heaven, and the band Queen. So with all that out of the way, let's get on with it. And thank you again for downloading this month's episode. Tia Sillers, welcome to Write You a Song. And just for once and for all, it's S-I-L-L-E-R-S, Sillers. And uh, that's probably been something that's uh, annoyed you your whole life. (laughs) Yes, and particularly as a songwriter, it's it's been a bane because there's also another writer in Nashville named Sillers. And... Uh, yeah, it was frustrating. So, Well, now that you're nominated for the Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame, I think people are going to remember who you are once and for all. You're in some incredible company. You've got, just from the songwriting um, camp, uh, Kent Blasey, Sean Camp, uh, Brett James, yeah. and then you have singer-songwriters nominated this year, including Steve Earle, Phil Vassar, Kix Brooks, Stephen Curtis Chapman. That's amazing company. And, I mean, obviously, one of these things is not like the other, and I'm the only woman. But, but I'm going to take it and run. I'm going to take the nomination. I mean, it's it's such a cutthroat business um, anyway that I just can't really believe I'm included in the list. Well, you do have, I'm um, looking at the uh, I Hope You Dance Wikipedia page. That song is ranked 352nd in the list of the songs of the century compiled by the uh, Recording Industry Association of America. That's pretty good. You know, uh, what's, what's really funny is um, almost all of the other people nominated have, like, songs with the alcohol in them, like two pina coladas or beer run or beer man or beer like that. And it's, it's funny because I don't have any song. I've never written a song like that, primarily because I figured I, no one would cut it and I couldn't get away with it. And so I'm really sad <laughs> that maybe by default, being a woman, I had to write more serious songs. Even though I wrote a lot of fun songs, every every subject was more serious. Now, wait a minute. Didn't you co-write John Party's Empty Beer Cans? That is true, and you are correct. That is very bad of me. But that <laughs> song is actually about a person looking at the empty beer cans in their life and realizing they don't want to be an, like an empty beer can. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, this time I said I'm calling it quits. I'm not turning her on anymore. She packed up the same old stuff, slammed the same old door, and I said goodbye. She said the hell with the 
pictures in a box. Right on my bed in the backyard, have myself a bonfire. Watch that son of a bitch burn away to the ground, just like everything. That's just what you do when you're at the bottom of shore, kid. Did you come from a musical family? No, I didn't come from a musical family. And um, no, I don't think I was particularly musical at an early age. I was just a super curious and creative person and very much in my head. I was a real um, loner of a kid, you know. And then I had parents who were very, very, very creative and encouraging. Now, obviously, doing what you do, you're a good singer. When did you know you could sing? It's it's funny because I have this crystal clear memory of singing Washing the Dishes as a kid, um, standing by the sink and washing the dishes, and my brother saying something like, you sound like an old church lady in a choir. And it really affected me, like, well, maybe I shouldn't try to sing. And then I was in a bunch of school plays and in high school and things like that where I sang. But being a singer and being a writer – are two totally different things. Were you always a a literary kid? I think so. I've had enough time to think about that now. Like I didn't feel that I was particularly a writer or particularly creative, but I was a voracious reader. Uh, My head in a book constantly. And, um, and I was a voracious uh, listener and I, I memorized all sorts of, poems and songs and, and uh, so, so something must've been going on in my brain. There must've been something. Do you remember when those two worlds merged and singer met songwriter? Well, we moved to Nashville when I was 14 years old and my family uh, rented a condo just a few blocks from the Bluebird Cafe. And so I'm like on my little bicycle biking all around and I wasn't allowed to cross over Hillsborough road. So I could only stay on the bluebird side of Hillsborough road, not the other side. And I, you know, saw this little venue and they have six o'clock shows. So this would have been summertime when we moved. And so six o'clock would have been sunny and bright and everything. And I remember looking in the windows and everything and thinking, wow, that's really interesting. And then for some reason, I biked around the back parking lot and I remember this so clearly and I saw that the back door was open and there was a kitchen back there. And for some reason I thought it was okay to walk through the kitchen and just check this place out. (laughs) And I did. And so I saw that there were these people singing and I found out that they were free shows. So then I, I started going several, several times a week. Okay, so you were this this smart literary kid. Um, you, you knew you could sing, um, and here you are uh, riding your bike around like ground zero for so many great singer and songwriter careers. It's where they got started. Were you at that time like into music? Were you like really into music? I, gosh, I feel so silly to say say this. Like my, I loved songs. But, like, my family didn't even own a stereo. We didn't have a record player. We didn't even have a TV. My parents were very uh, alternative people. They really thought we needed to be in our brains. Mm-hmm. And, and, but somehow, I mean, I learned songs. I memorized songs. I can, I mean, it's amazing the number of songs that I know by heart that I don't even know how I, I 
really learned them. So I must have been a sponge early on. Mm -hmm. And then when I first was at the Bluebird, the first couple times of the Bluebird shows, I don't have any memory of them except that I thought it was so incredibly cool to be 14 years old and in a venue listening to music. Right. But very soon after that, it would have been in the first week or so, I got I would have stayed and gotten to see a Don for a Dollar show or a Don Don Schlitz show. Mm. And for those who don't know, Don Schlitz is one of the most talented, prolific songwriters in country music history. Probably most well known for a little ditty he wrote for Kenny Rogers. You got to know when to hold up, know when to fold up, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. When the deal is done. And I was a sucker for Don Schlitz the minute I met him. And I was like, how do I grow up and do that? Although I still didn't understand what doing that was. And the thing is, I, I guess I need to say two things. One is, it was my mother who made me aware of songwriters. Because I remember like being a little kid in the car listening to music and my mother saying like that was written by Burt Backrack. He's a famous mm. songwriter. That was written by Carol King. She's a famous songwriter. And I, I guess I lodged that was cause that went in my brain for some reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know where it connected. Right. So yeah, yeah, I think, I think that was, that was partially it. I became aware that songs were crafted. Do you remember the first real attempts you made at songwriting? How did it go? Well, so I was going to the Bluebird all throughout high school, but I swear I still don't think it really occurred to me to write songs because one, I was on a very, very, very serious educational path. Both of my parents had come from um, very uneducated and poverty families, and they were really out to for us to make a big change. So I was going to the university, I was going to university and I, I had got a full academic scholarship to the University of North Carolina. I had pressure on me to really deliver. I was going to be a hedge fund manager. I was going to be a CFO. <laughs> really? This was that trajectory. Yes, absolutely. And um, I was going to get, make a lot of money and I was going to take care of my parents and I was going to use my brain power that I had to really run businesses. I mean, this was my plan. This was really my plan. And then when I, so I was in grad school getting my MBA. Oh, well, I guess I need to go backwards. I graduated from high school a year early and I graduated from college in three years. So I'm only 20 years old when I'm entering grad school. Wow. Okay. So I'm in grad school the summer before grad school. I go to there. I'm going to Vanderbilt University for summer school to try to get two more credit hours. And I meet a guy named George Dukas. And George was here in Nashville getting his economics degree and trying to become a, an artist and a songwriter of his own right. And he was incredibly gorgeous and handsome. He had all this swagger. And he says to me um, one day, he's like, you should come check out my show at Amy's. And so <laughs> I do. I go and check out his show at Amy's. And I go, my God, this man has so much charisma. This, is, this man is a magnet, but his songs are terrible. They're incredibly <laughs> cliche. Uh -huh. And so for some insane reason, I said, I think you need help with your songs and I'm your person. And we did. We sent that summer writing and then I went to grad school, started grad school. And while I'm in grad school, 
he gets a publishing deal um, with Radney Foster. I then come home at Thanksgiving time and I have a meeting with BMI because suddenly I've got these songs that are published. And then I literally get my first publishing deal with a guy named Tom Collins. And Tom Collins is sort of famous for being a real, he really uh, was a great man who empowered women. And he had, he, he was responsible for Kai Fleming, who was one of the women in the Hall of Fame. And he met me and he said, I'll sign you to a deal, but you have to finish grad school and I'll pay you, I don't know, a hundred bucks a week. And I thought this was hilarious because I was like, well, I'm going to be a hedge fund manager, but I might as well be a songwriter for the next year of my life. And so that's what I did. And I literally, for that year, I thought I was going to be dropped at any moment. And, and, you know, and I was dating a guy in law school who went on to become a, a, a clerk for the Supreme Court. I mean, I was like, I'm really, I was around a, he- a bunch of heady people. And I remember graduating and having this publishing deal and just going, I know this is crazy, but I'm not going to go take this big job in Boston. I'm going to come to Nashville and dedicate myself for six months and see what happens. And I mean, it, it happened so fast for me. It, I, I, I always feel so sheepish. I am surrounded. I work with the most fiercely talented, complicated, dedicated people. And they are—they have been here for ten years for working for their break. And I—I I had a top five record within my first year of my career, and I never stopped. And that song was "Lipstick Promises." Yes, yeah, and I'm not bragging about it. I'm saying, like, for some reason, my lottery numbers in life just locked up so fast, and it's so completely unfair. But that's what this, it's all unfair. It was a great lesson in how unfair life is, both good and bad. I'll tell you a quick story about that song. Uh, the guy that I work with on our morning show at the radio station in Sacramento, where I'm at, um, we will have been together for 28 years in November. And back in the early 90s when that song first came out, it jumped out uh, sonically to both of us. It just sounded so good, and it was so well written and sung. And it was a hit, but it was like in medium rotation on our radio station. And Pat and I both thought that it should probably be played a little bit more. And this is back when you could get away with this kind of thing you know, a little renegade radio. Uh, and so we would just, we would look at each other sometimes and go, you know what we need? We need some Dukas. Because that's why, <laughs> I don't know why, that's how we would say his name. And we would we would plug in Lipstick Promises. If my current boss is listening, we do not do that anymore. Haven't done it for years. Gosh, this that just is the most flattering. Wow. Uh, I have to say that, that one of the most lucky things, if I were to, I mean, I am. I consider myself the luckiest unlucky. Like I, I only get two kinds of luck: extreme fabulous luck, and terrible horrible luck. There's not much of my life is in between. But 
lipstick promises for me. It set the bar so high. It was so instantly cool. Everybody was like, wow. To where nobody would take crap from me. Nobody, I, I couldn't write, I couldn't write a ditty to save my life. And it actually made it harder, but it also made it, um, it was cool. I mean, it was like, wow, no fluff for Tia. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, kind of the, you explaining your background sort of explains how versatile I think you are because you've written country songs for people like John Party and George Dukas and the Dixie Chicks and, of course, Leanne Womack, but you've also written for John Waite and Ronan Keating and Little River Band and, and Five Finger Death Punch and um, you, you, you cut in Kenny Wayne Shepherd and you just you cover this gamut and, and you, so there's pop in there and there's rock and I'm just wondering is it all just a stew or are you in a rock mood so you decide to write rock or if you're in a pop mood so you're going to write pop well there's two things I think I would have almost exclusively written country if one country had stayed as smart and as progressive as it was when I first entered it in the nineties, it was incredibly powering and, and empowering and thought provoking and provocative and evocative. Um, people got to just sing about all different types of subjects and, and, um, and then basically really with nine 11, um, that we kind of had a, a gut reaction and country music became much more conservative. And I don't, and I, I call it that women kind of became songwriters became had to wear burkas and that we could be seen, but not heard. And the only way women artists got on the radio were very, very, very either polite songs or other songs embracing their redneckness, which neither one of those hold any allure to me. So as a woman, I sort of pivoted then and started going, okay, well, where are these other enlightened, open-minded people who are going to let me write um, the kind of songs I think that are really, that the world needs? And I, one of the luckiest things that happened to me, the luckiest, unluckiest things, is at that time in the 90s, I met a man named Mark Selby, and Mark just saw me as a great songwriter. Wow, a great songwriter, a great broad. And we he did not see it as gender. He just saw it as like, and we became best friends and kind of like I was his sister and he was my brother. And then somewhere along the way, five or six years into our relationship, we fell in love and we got married and we had a wonderful life together. And he was the most empowering uh, legitimizer for me because having him... Uh, one definitely opened up doors in rock world because we would write together at first. And then lots of times I would go write with them by myself, but it, he, because he was a big old tough rock and roller and he looked all, it, it legitimized me. And I hate to say it, but so I needed a, a man who loved me and who believed in my talent to probably help me open up doors. And then once the doors were open, I was able to prove my own worth. But I don't think, I don't think without him, um, you know, that, that might, that I might've, a lot of these doors would have opened. I mean, I know I would have never gotten a John Waite cut. I would have never gotten all those Kenny Wayne Shepherd's cuts. I, that thoroughly happened because of Moss. Moss was the rock and roller and they wanted Kenny Wayne to work with him. And then Moss brought me in and it changed our dynamic. And, and that's just been amazing. I love, you know, a mindless rock anthem, mindless country anthem, just as much as anybody else. But I love it when a song really kind of speaks to me because I think our generation, we grew up with music and songwriters were kind of our poets. It's our poetry. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I, I 
I think one of the most lovely things about a, a great song is a great song can wash over you and you cannot, it can mean nothing to you, but it just washes over you and it changes your emotion. And then if you decide to go deeper, if you decide to go deeper and learn what that, take the time to learn the lyrics, to learn what the song is singing, that it doesn't disappoint, that it takes you even deeper into the song. I, and I want, when I write a song, I want the song to look beautiful on paper as well as one being sung. I want it to be, it, I want it to be so fully fashioned. I mean, so many songs. I mean, my favorite example is play that funky music, white boy, play that funky music loud, lay down the boogie, play that funky music till you die. I mean, that's so much fun to sing, but it's incredibly stupid to say. And I, I want, I want my songs to be, well, with six promises. You told me I was all you'd ever need. You said my love would always be enough. Scarlet kisses on my skin pulled me till the end. I mean, that stands on its own, right? You can sing it. You can say it. Well, is it up to the artists, too, and their teams to kind of seek out these these songs that have a little more depth to them? That's really what it gets down to. We just need smart-thinking people to make great music and then just try to stay as true true to themselves as possible because the thing about an artist is um artists are supposed to be complicated complex people a matter of fact one of the most interesting things about artists to me is artists are supposed to take up a lot of oxygen in the room artists are supposed to be a little hard to handle they have to have that charisma they have to have that personality and a half you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and that's the other thing I think is, is so many people more recently have been sort of contrived and created and they haven't been as complex an artist, nuanced an artist. Take a quick moment on Write You a Song to uh, say that we are talking to songwriter Tia Sillers. And in just a bit, we're going to bring in um, a young lady by the name of Shannon Labrie, young artist that Tia has been collaborating with. And the results are fantastic. You're really going to like it. But first, Tia, what you're talking about, artists that remain true to themselves and it kind of are, are larger than life. Um, the, the Dixie Chicks, or now the Chicks as they're called, are kind of the embodiment of that, you know, remaining true to yourself to the point that they... They nearly lost it all. Um, they've regained a lot of it back, but you helped them get their start. You wrote one of their first big hits, There's Your Trouble. And the story that I heard is that the uh, song came about, it was inspired by the burgeoning relationship that you were having with uh, with Mark at the time. You know what? Everybody always thinks that, and uh, no. Uh, what was really funny was we had a number of friends who were having big success writing power ballads at that time. And I always consider a power ballad is like, I can't live if living is without you. You know, that kind of, that's a power ballad. And we sat down to try to write this great, big, dramatic power thing. And we just could not do it. And we used to write every other Tuesday. That's Mawson used to write every other Tuesday. And we banged and banged and banged. And I finally just said, you know, we are not power powered people. And, I called him Moss, by the way, because his name was Mark Otis Selby, M-O-S. And there were a million Marks in my life. There was Mark Wright and Mark Wright and Mark Sanders and everything. So I just had to start calling him Mark Moss so I wouldn't be confused. And he started playing that riff of There's Your Trouble. And, and that whole first verse is literally about, like, it should be easier to write a song. But it isn't easier. It should be different. It should be easy. This should be super simple. But why is it so hard? And your trouble is you're trying to be too smart. You don't need to be too smart. should have been different, but it wasn't different. Was it? Same old story and dear to John and so along. 
with your biggest hit, I Hope You Dance. And I know you've told this story a million times, but it'll be the first on our podcast. I just, I love the story and, and the way it transitions from basically it's your mom uh, talking trash on a guy that had just broken up with you and you're going through this just terrible period in your life. Um, and you were able to take that and turn it into one of the most inspiring songs ever recorded. My mother, so so I lost my mom to cancer very soon after I wrote I Hope You Dance. And then I lost my husband, lost to cancer, three almost exactly three years ago. Um, as a matter of fact, on Thursday, it will be three years ago. So I have been really touched by terrible slow death. And I am so grateful for two things about I Hope You Dance. One is that my mother right before she got sick, she would, I already had the Dixie Chicks um, hit, There's Your Trouble. And so my mom would always call me up and she'd go, mom, check, baby, check, 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 check. Cause she thought that was hilarious. And so I broke up with this fella and I'm down at the beach all by myself. And my mom would pick up the phone. She probably called me 10 times a day. And she's like, mama, check the baby chick. Check it on the baby chick. Is the baby chick okay? And I was like, yes, mama. And then she'd say, I hope that son of a bitch rocks in hell. I hope he spends the rest of your life, his life missing you. I hope he <laughs> never loves again. I hope, you know, he dreams of you every night. <laughs> the wrong hope. And it was this incredible list of, of hope. And then I am walking on the beach every day. I'm down in Apalachicola beach all by myself. It was my first adult vacation by myself. And, um, I'm out on the beach and I'm just contemplating. I'm like, I'm inconsequential. I'm not even a grain of sand. Maybe I should just throw my body out and be shark bait or fish bait or, ah, you know, what's the point? And all of a sudden I'm alone on the beach by myself. And this big SUV pulls up on the beach completely unexplicably and has dark tinted windows and this guy gets out and he's on a cell phone and this would have been back when cell phones were gigantic you know and he's yelling into the cell phone and he completely ruins my contemplation existential crisis moment and I whip around and this is one of the things about the story I don't know if I said it or thought it like I don't know and no one else is there, so I will never know if I yelled at him, you know what your problem is, you don't feel small when you stand beside the ocean, and you never will. Or if I thought it, I don't remember, but I remember whipping back around, looking at the ocean, and going, oh, that's a good idea. I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. And then immediately, I mean, I'm talking immediately, I hope you never lose your sense of wonder. I hope you always keep that hunger. I mean, all those came to me. I hope you never lose your sense of wonder. You get your fill to eat, but always keep that hunger. May you never take one single breath for granted. God forbid love ever leave you empty-handed. You still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. Whenever one door closes, I hope one more opens. Promise me that you'll give faith the fighting chance. And when you get the choice to sit it out or dance, I hope you. 
And I was driving home from the beach. I was driving home, and I'm outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and Diana Mayer, who is now basically my publisher, she was the witness at my wedding. She's my de facto sister-in-law. But she calls me up and says, I'm having a writer retreat in Estes Park, Colorado, and one of the writers canceled. Could you come in and sub? And I wasn't even offended that I wasn't asked to do it <laughs> in the first place. And she says, just get it. I go, I can't. I'm driving back. I'm, I'm south of Atlanta. She goes, just park your car in Atlanta and get on a plane. And I did. I parked my car in Atlanta, got on the plane, and she sent Mark Selby down to pick me up at the airport. And I go to the Rocky Mountains for the first time in my life. I've never seen those mountains. And I know that's where I hope you never fear the mountains in the distance came from. And I spent that writing retreat, writing songs. I don't even know what those songs were. And I come back from that trip. I have to fly back to Atlanta to get my car. I drive back to Nashville, Tennessee. And my first writing appointment was with Mark Sanders. And that's what we wrote. Promise me that you'll give faith That's unbelievable. I mean, that, that, that level of, um, of luck and that level of those many pieces and and if there is one thing I have learned that I'm so grateful for being a songwriter for is it has taught me that I have to be paying attention at all times. Mm-hmm. I have to be super mindful. I have to be noticing that there's a, there's a yellow bird on the window sill. And I have to notice the color of the sky today. I have to notice how my heart and my head feels because somehow all these cogs are collecting at all any one time to become the next thought, the next song. And if I'm not observant, I got no idea. And before we get to Shannon, we're going to bring Shannon in in just a moment. But um, where did the, the the concept for Blue on Black for Kenny Wayne Shepherd come from? Because country is is just it, lyrically, it's it's very direct, and that song has there's an abstractedness to it, um, and it's just a it's a funky concept. And here you are talking about being observant. Just I'm curious where lyrically that song came from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that it's been one of the greatest pleasures of my life to get to write with Kenny Wayne specifically because um with rock and roll rock blues I don't know what to call his music but but evocative electric guitar band rock and roll music um I don't like to use the words rock logic but you get to paint in broader strokes. And so you actually, I feel that I use less words and I want every word to count. I'm super obsessed with, with syllables. I'm super obsessed with an evocative thought. And um, so we were down in Louisiana, New Orleans, writing a second record. We were at the Royal Sinesta Hotel staying in the presidential suite, which is hilarious, but that was back when record labels had money and they would just put you up for weeks at a time. <laughs> and... Kenny and, and Moss have like 15 different amps that different people have sent them and all these different guitars. I mean, it was very decadent. And they were more interested, to tell you the truth, in, in what I call tone quest. They were questing tone. And so they were messing with the tubes and the knobs. And I was like, when are we ever going to write a song? In the meantime, Kenny Wayne has a shirt on that's a blue and black striped shirt. And I remember thinking well, I wonder if it's a blue fabric with black on it or if it's a black fabric with blue on it. And I was like, well, if there's a blue... And I was like, well, if it was black with blue, it wouldn't... Because the blue, the black would overpower the black. And that's what got me thinking. So then 
I was just merely entertaining myself and writing down what would other examples of blue on black be? And, you know, blue on black, tears on a river, um, cold on ice, that um, joker on Jack, match on a fire, um, dead man's touch. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean a thing. Blue on black. I just messed up the rhymes, but you know, you get it. The point <laughs> is these were these things that would cancel each other out. And then at some point in the day, they started playing that dun, 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 dun. Night falls and I'm alone. Skin, yeah, you. Mind me saying this at all. So Kenny was like 19 at the time. He's a superstar. All his high school friends had driven down from Louisiana. They show up with a can, or like three cans of Silly String and a case of Pabst Blue Ribbon and proceed to take Kenny Wayne out on the French Quarter and go party. And Moss and I stayed and finished that song because that's what professional songwriters do. So <laughs> Kenny always does not mind the fact that we basically wrote the second verse and the back half of the chorus without him, that he was out partying. That's okay. He's good with that. See, that's why I started this podcast, because you get stories like that. Now, let's bring in uh, Shannon Labrie, and she's the young lady that you've collaborated with on Shannon's first album. It's called Building, and it's actually been out since September 25th. This podcast drops in October, so the album is out. And um, you don't see a lot of like direct singer songwriter collaborations where it's just one songwriter working with one singer but that's what this is why did you choose to do this and and why did you choose to do it with with shannon one of the most interesting things about my career is that um almost all of it i have worked exclusively with men because once again i'm telling you it's it's and when I when I would was first signing at a publishing company, like they would they would literally say like we have a one woman quota or we have a two woman quota. Oh well, we only have one woman at our publishing company. We can't have another one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I was keenly keenly aware that if I got to get a, my pub, a publishing deal, I had to earn it. And so I, the last thing I was going to do was write with men. 
And right then, I met this amazing uh, woman named Victoria Banks. And Victoria had a big career in Canada. And we wrote her two records in Canada. And she won Canadian music art, country music artists. artist. And, and we just formed this tremendous friendship. And then a few years later, in 20, uh, uh, I guess it was in 2014, I met a woman named Kelsey Waters. And I've rich more rock and alternative. And then I met Shannon and, and it was like these different things of like, okay, if you're really not going to let me, despite my talent, even be in the room anymore, if that door is so firmly padlocked, then guess what? I don't want to pick your walk. I don't want to be a part of it. So Shannon Labrie, welcome to write you a song. We appreciate you being on, appreciate your patience too. What was it like um, meeting Tia and, and knowing her reputation. And I'm curious also, because you're very young and, and Tia, you're still very young, but you guys are of different generations. And you, what, what was it about this dynamic that, uh, that you felt that there was something there that, that you could work with? We are, but we're also the same generation in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like we're, I very much, I feel like Tia is a kindred spirit to me. Um, just and when I first was writing with her, our publisher, Diana Mayer from Moray Music Group, which is my first publishing deal. I've not been signed before. Um, so, you know, this is like a new experience for me. But she set me up with Tia to write. And, she's, and she would just, she would say things like, I don't know, I'd go in with a song and she'd be like, oh, you've got, you've got to meet Tia. You've got to write with Tia. And, um, you know, I, I try to not like, learn too much about people and i know tia does too before you write because you there's no i want i don't want a single preconceived idea and you don't want to like put them in a box either but it's hard not to know who people are when you're tia silliers and you've written Mm -hmm. some of the greatest songs ever now shannon i've had an advanced copy of your album again it's called building it's out now it came out on september 25th um and one of the first things that i noticed is there's no click tracks on here. Um, it's, it's real instruments and real music being made by real people in their hands and their minds and their hearts. And, um, and you've got such a great voice. And the whole thing is just, it's got this really cool kind of bluesy kind of swampy um, sound to it sonically. And it's just, it really, I love it. And there's a song on there called uh, Firewalker, which is a tremendous song. Um, you know, out here on the West Coast, we've had so many fires and there's been so much smoke in the air. And the opening lines of that song, just I was listening to it again the other day and I'm driving home and I'm through the smoke and it just um, it, it took on a, a whole other sort of dimension for me. And, and, and again, that's one of the things I love so much about music and about, you know, really well-written songs. Well, she, thanks. That gives me chills because it was also Joe. We wrote that song with Joe Robinson, who's Australian uh, artist himself. And when we wrote it, the fires that were happening in Australia were raging. No way. Um, and he, yeah, yeah, he grew up in the bush in Australia, and a lot of his home has been burned up. And so the the song has, yeah, it, multiple layers of meaning. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, at the crux of it, what fire? What I think is so fabulous about Firewalker is, if I may be so selfish. I started, I wanted to write Firewalker because it was saying like, I did not set out to know mm-hmm. the heat of these coals. I did not set out to be a widow. I did not set out to lose my major writing partner, mm-hmm. but I'm a right Firewalker, right? And then that we wrote it just as this empowering song. We did not write this song mm-hmm. for COVID. We wrote this song, but not, but yet it, it's, we're all Firewalkers, mm-hmm. Right. Inch by inch, crawling embers and ashes. 
ash is falling, but get a smoke is covering up my sky. Step by step, Lord, it takes your breath on it. Some days I swear the flames get ten feet high. Mm, yeah. I did not set out to know. Shannon, you, you do have an amazing voice, and I think one of the best um, displays of it is on a song called One in a Billion. Um, you're restrained, but then you, you show the power that you have and the range, and lyrically, it's just it's a wonderful song. One question I have, I don't hear the best. So um, when I was looking at the notes, it says the song is one in a million, but when I'm listening to it, I hear one in a billion. So uh, which is it? Billion. Okay, it's good. One in a million is not enough. Yeah, one in a million, poof. <laughs> Unless it comes to people with podcasts, then, you know, like everybody has one. But I think that song is a perfect example of your vocal prowess, and, and the message is, is beautiful. So just talk a little bit about it. Yeah, that song, I think that song might be my favorite song on the album, actually, and even just sonically. And, and it's, you know, it's a G and C hang on, which is something that I grew up listening to James Taylor, and my dad played like that. So it's very much in my, like, very natural state but i love that song and i love that message that was the first song we wrote together um what was interesting is it started off as another song mm-hmm. and we left after that song and we did not feel that we captured it mm-hmm. and that also is one of those things where i think is so important i think some songwriters just sort of tri- like they just write 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 it's almost like a they just want to keep throwing stuff at the wall and see what sticks and i am all about we don't think we nailed something, but there's elements of it. Let's deconstruct it. Let's mm-hmm. let's forget it. Let's start it all over again. Let's take the three little kernels we love. And we yeah. we would have never... I mean, that's a Firewalker, too. Yeah. Firewalker took several evolutionary steps to where it is now on the record. Yeah. Stars are flooding up the sky Right before my very eyes My heart feels busted open wide To countless years of ancient Nobody 
Civilian, just because we just talked about blue on black, is actually it's the same repeating metaphor. It's the same trick. Mm -hmm. um, the list of the of your you're a, a diamond in a coal mine, you're an unanswered, you're a prayer, you're a, mm -hmm. a I can't even, the universe expanding, yeah. you're a, you're a mat, painter's masterpiece, yep. you're a, it's this list of these rare things. Oh, and I want to say, uh, just because uh, you made me think of it, I was listening to it on the way home, and that part of the song, it, it, was, it sounds like, I remember thinking, it, that had to be fun to write, that part had to be fun to write, because you're just, you're letting your brains go. You're got to wrap this interview up but i do want to ask you shannon um as, as a newer artist where do you see yourself in kind of the genre landscape are you country are you americana are you folk are you, do labels even matter anymore is that something you you even concern yourself with um i'm trying to i've been trying to define that and i think what's cool about this album because because for an artist for me and this is why co-writers like tia or and working with a publisher and a team around you it's really hard for me to to see like what I am, you know. And I go to therapy so much. You think I get better at it, but like it's hard to you know define um, what I am because I'm playing. You know, I'm playing from my. Well, how do you categorize your soul? Yeah. And but but this this project, my publisher and I really wanted to set out to like kind of can we find a lane? Because yeah. my last two rec, my first record and my last record, which I did independently, like they're kind of all over the map. And, um, but I think this album, I think recording live and recording not to click, I think it kind of became a thing. And I think it is, I think it does have, I mean, I'm from Nebraska. If I'm not country, like what is country? I grew up on a farm in Nebraska, but like, I think there's country elements and I think there's Americana. Um, but more than anything, I think it's just, it's very live and it's very like on the tip of the nerve of emotions mm. and you know the thing is like the, the artists that you've been talking about that you and i i think agree on a current artist like jason isbell who that's who she is you know i mean she's yeah. that caliber of greatness where does that fit in the world i don't have an answer and when it's all said and done it doesn't really matter if you if you like it it's good and i love this shannon Labrie. Congratulations on an excellent album. It's called Building. It's out now. And it's a collaboration with songwriter Tia Sillers, who, by the way, is nominated for the Nashville Songwriting Hall of Fame. Tia, good luck with that. Shannon, best of luck with this album. And thank you, thank you, thank you both for joining me today on Write You a Song. You were awesome. Well, thank you so much. We're going to send it out with the title track from Shannon LaBrie's album. It's L-A-B-R-I-E. It's out now. It's called Building. Thanks for listening. You are the
Write You a Song is produced at KNCI Radio, Bonneville Communications, Sacramento, California. If you like this podcast, appreciate it. Give us a like and share it with your friends. And coming up next month. I'll play something country. He's got you. He co-wrote over 20 songs with Brooks and Dunn. Yeah, you're familiar with a few of them. Terry McBride, next time on Write You a Song. Oh, and don't forget, that little added extra bit of the interview with Tia is coming up in just a few moments. And T, I wanted to just show one thing to you because Blue on Black was recorded by all those artists. Uh, yeah. And, and Brian May was one of the artists that, that was on that album. And I don't know if you can see over my shoulder there, but and it's backwards. But that's a, a Queen poster that I got Brian May and Roger Taylor to sign in 2006. And it's my prized possession. Wow. <laughs> well, well, I have something that I have to say about that. So, you know, last year it was it was Five Finger Death Punch, Bradley Gil- Gilbert, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and Brian May yeah. all recorded on black. And I think that is just proof that Moss died and went to rock and roll heaven and met Freddie Mercury <laughs> and they orchestrated the whole thing. And the, and I swear to God, Moss it was sitting up in heaven with my mother, because my mom is also in rock and roll heaven. Uh-huh. She just is. And Going, what would make? What would be the ultimate sign that we could send to you to, to know that I or this thing? And he did it. He nailed it. So now I'm like one degree away from Queen. <laughs>